0: Hello and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you've left for me in the comment section of my Q&A videos or have sent to me by email at askchrisshelton@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Uh, boy, just all kinds of... Uh, wild and crazy things happening this last couple of weeks in the news and everything. But uh, let's just kind of throw all that aside and just answer some questions this week. Uh, I did want to say uh, thank you to the new people who have signed up on Patreon. I lost a couple of big uh, supporters uh, fairly recently, so some people have been uh, adding on and in smaller amounts and that has been great, that has been wonderful. I am very, very thankful for that. Every little bit of support you guys give me through Patreon helps uh, me do this work and, uh, and buys me the time to do it. Uh, so I want to encourage everybody who enjoys this channel and enjoys what I am doing here and feels that there is uh, something educational, informative, and entertaining here to please uh, back me up if you can. All right, let's go ahead and get on with your questions now. Bob. On a recent video you did with John Atack, he mentioned that Hubbard didn't actually write most of his books regarding Scientology. I think he said Hubbard only really wrote Dianetics, the Modern Science of Mental Health. Can you provide any further elaboration on this? Are Scientologists generally aware of this? Who, besides David Mayo, actually wrote all that gibberish? What about all the policy letters and the other near-constant utterances issued before Hubbard's death? Ok, the true authorship of Dianetics and Scientology. This is actually uh, quite a big topic and one I won't be able to address fully in an answer on this video, um, but let me tell you with, first off what John was referring to and then we'll go from there. Um, Hubbard, When John said that Dianetics, the Modern Science of Mental Health, which was the, the, the book one of Dianetics, or of the whole thing, which was written in May 1950. Uh, That meant Hubbard actually sat on a typewriter and wrote it, okay? He dictated all of the other books of Dianetics and Scientology. He either recorded them onto little uh, wax discs which were uh, sort of the way that, that his voice was recorded in this, in this Dictaphone device, uh, or some other way, you know, on, a, on some other recording device, um, dictated the work. And, uh, and I think that's true for every other written book. Now, I actually knew that when I was in Scientology because David Miscavige actually briefed everybody on that fact when he did the big three-hour-long event laying out all the basic books of Dynetics and Scientology and how they had been being re-released in, I think that was 2006 or so. So so that's not something that's hidden away from Scientologists that that Hubbard dictated his books and if you look at the style of the writing you can actually see that because for example in books like Dynetics 55 or Advanced Procedure and Axioms, or some other Hubbard books. There's some really long, run-on sentences uh, which come from speaking, you know, rather than uh, when, when you write for, uh, you know, when you're writing something it, it, on, a, on a typewriter, on a computer, it, it comes across really differently. It reads really differently than when you're dictating things. Uh, but then there's the question of other people authoring the works, which is the main, you know, bulk of your question, and yeah, there were other people who very definitely contributed to uh, the work over the years. Lots and lots of people, actually. John mentions that uh, Richard Demille, who was Cecil B. Demille's son, was connected with Elron Hubbard in the early days of Dianetics, and he went with Hubbard to Cuba in 1951. And John's assertion, I believe, is that uh, Richard actually did most of the writing of Science of Survival, which was the second book uh, of Dianetics. Uh, I don't know that that's true, you know, and I don't know if it's provable one way or the other. I think that's, I I think that's, that might, there might be some conjecture there, but I am in the middle of, you know, doing all kinds of compilation and research on that time period and on, and on the whole Scientology library. So I'll find out more about that, uh, but I know that's what John was thinking and asserting on that because the uh, Hubbard was having some pretty intense personal problems during that period of time. Uh, December 1950 through to, you know, May, June, July of uh, 1951 was an extremely tumultuous time. That was the time period where Hubbard uh, kidnapped his, his own daughter uh, from um, his uh, wife and uh, and estranged wife and there was all kinds of controversy and this was actually even making it into the newspapers and then he took off to Cuba I mean it was a mess so sometime in that time period Hubbard also wrote Science of Survival which is supposed to be this book that that goes that tells you all about how to be you know a good person high on the Scientology emotional tone scale uh, while he's you know doing all these horrible awful things um, other people contributed in many, many ways over the years with a lot of bulletin writing. Um, the, the the bulk of Dianetics and Scientology's techniques and methods are in these bulletins, these Hubbard Communications Office bulletins, which is red ink on white paper. And um, we know that L. Ron Hubbard Jr. wrote bulletins. We know that there were other members of the organization who wrote bulletins. I have seen... Uh, policy letters also uh, for the organization written by Mary Sue Hubbard and written by many, many different uh, Scientology executives over the years, but they all ended up with L. Ron Hubbard's name on them as supposed authorship, and yet that was not the case at all. It's, a, it's, it's some of the most blatant historical revisionism ever. Uh, Because you can actually go on the internet or go to archives and collections of of Scientology materials, like I went to UCLA and went through their archives, and and you can find the original copies of these bulletins or policy letters when they still had the original authorship signatory on them and it was only later that they went back and changed it so if you were to go through the modern Scientology library and look through and try to see who who wrote this stuff you wouldn't be able to figure it out you have to go back to the earlier collections and it's you know it's, it's quite a, a bit of a Herculean task to go through all that and, and so I could never give you uh, you know a complete list of every single person who contributed Policies and bulletins, but they are legion. There were many, many people. Hubbard did not write all that stuff. There's also the idea of uh, Hubbard just cribbing ideas from people. And sure, he, he gave a lecture or he wrote a bulletin, but the ideas in that lecture, or in that bulletin, came whole, you know, just ripped off whole cloth from uh, Scientologists or other authors or other fields. Um, and I think. Um, I did a, I did in my Basics of Scientology series, I did a study tech video on, on the study methodology in Scientology and how that was actually uh, ripped off from um, Charles and Ava Berner, uh, who I actually talked to, Ava, uh, uh, in that video. And, um, and the full interview that I did with her is on my Patreon channel for my, for my patrons. They can, they can listen to the whole thing, but it's, uh, you know, he just took that whole subject and and ran with it from their ideas. So that also fits into the bigger picture too. So all in all, um, many, many people contributed over the years, but uh, in the end Hubbard was the only one who uh, got credit for it. And that actually did cause over the years a lot of disaffection and a lot of people who were enthusiastic and excited about Dynetics and Scientology, were very active members uh, of it. But then seeing Hubbard's character and the way he was doing what he was doing, that turned them off and they, and they took off. That was, uh, that was from the 1950s onward. That was going on the whole time. So, kind of interesting stuff. Logamug. How does a person overcome the anxiety that comes with not being dogmatic? For instance... Given your intimate experiences with the subject of Scientology, you can easily and in good faith respond to the two most common retorts of, that's not real Scientology, or, it would work this time if we just changed X. However, with other religions, economic systems, ideologies, etc., given their diversity and complexity. It just doesn't seem feasible to be able to answer those same two questions with a good degree of certainty, especially given how broad those subjects are and how big their consequences are if true. It is definitely true that critical thinking is useful and easy to apply when it comes to small questions, but when it comes to these big ones, it seems like each person has to choose between action, based on big assumptions and patchy information, or impotence, forever studying. Yeah, this is a bit of a tough one for people, but actually, I well, here's a couple pointers or or guidelines or something I've sort of uh, used as I've come along with this. Um, This is really why, you know, kind of the answer to your question is sort of why we have authorities or experts in various fields, right? I mean, for you to know everything I know about Scientology would take you years to learn because it took me years to learn. Right? I didn't pick up everything I know about Scientology in a couple months. I, I spent decades in it, and uh, yet I don't have that same level of familiarity or uh, knowledge about astrophysics, right? but Neil deGrasse Tyson does. That's what he has spent his entire life studying. Uh, you have these, these large fields, you mentioned um, economic studies, religions, these sorts of things. Every one of the major religions of, the Earth, of, of planet Earth have, have people who spend their entire life studying them, the history of them, the dogma of them, the, you know, the, all the ins and outs of them. And we all can't be expected as critical thinkers to just you know, assimilate all that information that's just not realistic. There's a logical fallacy called argument from authority or appeal to authority, which actually means not going to an expert or valid authority on a topic, but it means going to somebody who presents themselves as an authority or who is some for some reason you think they're an authority when in fact they are not. And they don't know Uh, relevant facts to the the questions, the pertinent questions or subject matter that you're taking up, or they are maybe an expert in one field, right? Maybe they're an expert medical doctor, but that doesn't mean they know anything about, oh, I don't know, physics. (laughs) So you could, so if you were to go to, say, Dr. Oz and ask him about, you know, particle physics, uh, he's not really going to be able to talk very intelligently about that. And if you were to rely on that authority figure for your answers on that disrelated field to his area of expertise, you would then be committing that logical fallacy. So you don't want to do that. But when you go to actual authorities, actual you know people who have spent the, all those years doing all that study, well, there's no logical fallacy in taking their data and their views on something as you know, the experts that they are. So that is a good fallback to go to as a critical thinker when you are immersed in or learning about or getting into a new field or area that you don't know a whole lot about. You can't be expected to, to know everything, so you have to rely on, on experts. You have to rely on expert. Um, this also includes in, in written work. You know, when you're going to um, books or the internet articles blogs whatever are the people who wrote those things <laughs> knowledgeable enough to be able to talk authoritatively about the subject matter if they're not then there's really not a whole lot of use listening to what they have to say about it if you're looking for pure factual information about it the other thing about this that I wanted to bring up in answer to this question is the idea of fact versus opinion that's another thing about this and everybody's got opinions everybody's got views and ideas and and uh, you know what, what things they want to say about different topics uh, even with topics that they're not expert in or don't know a whole lot about they'll still utter you know whatever they're gonna utter about it uh, your job as a critical thinker is to gauge how much do they know what they're talking about if they don't know what they're talking about, then skip it. Uh, if they do, if they've done research on the topic, if they are presenting information from experts in and in maybe in a compilated form or something like that, uh, I just made that word up, compilated, <laughs> Then, um, then you're good, right? Then you're you're better than going with you know Joe the garbage guy. Uh, who might be able to give you some amazing information about sanitary conditions and and sanitation engineering, but maybe not the guy who's uh, going to be an expert on making donuts or something. So, I don't know. Those two things came to mind in answer to this question. This is something I also have been struggling with. I mean, you see some ums and ers and rrrrr about this when I'm answering this question. Um, I guess if I thought about it a lot I could write out some kind of a more more sensible answer but it is something I've also struggled with because I have my struggle has been you know now that I've dumped a whole belief system and it's been a few years what do I adopt as a new one <laughs> you know, how do I know what's right and what's wrong how do I not fall into uh, more cult thinking how do I avoid any of that and you just kinda do the best you can and when you and I've found myself plenty of times going down rabbit holes and falling down into um, accepting facts that I thought were, were comfortable for me and were were nice for me, but didn't actually end up being true, <laughs> you know facts, right? Uh, because I had to dive deeper and find out that the person who you know I've I've committed every logical fallacy. Uh, in trying to figure all this stuff out and I'm still going. So the way that you avoid being dogmatic is you just don't let yourself go into a place where you're not, you don't let yourself go to a place where you're not willing to say I don't know when you don't know. Those are very important words. And you always leave the door open in your your mind, so to speak, you know, as a metaphor uh, for new information to come in right? Because uh, that's how you avoid it's, it. Dog, dogmatism is more of an of an attitude than it is a a knowledge base, right? It's more of a, an arrogance or a condescension towards others who may be giving you new information that you don't have. Uh, that is the best advice I can give on that. I hope it helps. Alex Schomer. Since it's pretty obvious you're a science fiction fan and you're a former member of the Sea Org, I would like to know in what way people on staff and in the Sea Org are monitored and restricted when it comes to leisure or cultural activities. By that I mean, were you allowed to read comic books and watch sci-fi movies and series? Was there some sort of blacklist of certain movies, literature, ballets, operas, museums, etc., that were somehow perceived as perverted by Scientology and that people in the Sea Org weren't allowed to watch or take interest in? Okay, well, first thing you need to know is that in the Sea Org, you don't have a leisure time. And you don't have time to be sitting around watching TV series or movies or read comic books. I mean, just the time just isn't there. Uh, you literally are working, uh, like, if you just work according to the schedule, then you are, you know, ready to go on post at 8.30 to 9 o'clock in the morning, and you're not going to bed until 11, 11.30, 12 at night. And so there's very little time uh, when you have a half hour for lunch and a half hour for dinner to go up to your room and and read a you know you could do it people have done it there are lots of books around on the Sea Org bases that people read in their leisure time but we're talking about you know unless you're staying up late you're not you know, that time is not really afforded to you that is how that that schedule and the enforcement of that schedule is the main way that you are cut off from the fruits of the world and and the the fun things of life uh, however Yes, we did go to movies. Sometimes when there were uh, you know, good production quotas met or, or you get a day off or you know, squeeze one out or something like that, you go off to the movie theater. And there were very few movies that were prohibited or on some kind of a blacklist. There was never anything officially published on this, but as a Scientologist and as a Sea Org member, you knew you know, what to avoid and what not to. Like, for example, there was a movie Bowfinger that Eddie Murphy and Steve Martin were in, and I think Terrence Stamp played uh, the head of uh, Mindhead, (laughs) which was a total carpet copy of Scientology, and they were making fun of it. And so uh, word would get around, you know, about that, and so you wouldn't go see Bowfinger, right? But it wasn't like anybody had to come down and, and you know, say, don't go see this. And if you did, it's not like you know somebody was going to drag you out of your bed in the middle of the night and beat you with hoses or something. Uh, it was just, it was just sort of frowned upon, right? Uh, it would be different with something that was directly addressing Scientology, like a documentary, like Going Clear, or Leah Remini's show. Those are obviously verboten. But again. If you know, it, it would only be a really new Scientologist who would have to be sort of briefed on why that would be that way, right? Most Scientologists learn; they're indoctrinated into certain terminology like uh, n theta, right, which is like bad things to look at, things you know that are going to upset you as a Scientologist. So you shouldn't be looking at or reading those things because they are going to create controversy and problems for you, and they're going to upset you. So, Scientologists just kind of get the word on that. Uh, science fiction, pretty wide open, and in fact encouraged because movies like The Matrix or Star Wars or these kind of things, Scientologists love those things uh, because they appeal to the, their imagination and to the, the dogma. They're aligned to the dogma of Scientology in many, many ways. So, they, so they generally like those kinds of things. Uh, Comic books as well. Now, let me tell you another thing that happened, though, that will give you an idea of how limiting and difficult it was to even access on a day-to-day basis anything like leisure movies or entertainment. Uh, There was a guy caught one day watching DVDs in his room, in his birthing space, in the middle of the day and he got in trouble but the order that came from the RTC representative uh, on the base this was at the big blue buildings in the, the PAC base in LA was that security was to uh, confiscate all DVDs from every Sea Org member on the base and this order went to security before it went to or before anybody else knew about it so in a matter of a day or two I think it was in one day they actually went through the entire security force, went through everybody's rooms, searched through all their drawers, under their beds, under their mattresses, in their desks, wherever, whatever furniture they had in the dorms. They went through the the closets and and uh, under the beds and whatnot, and they confiscated every single DVD they could find, uh, and those were all put into uh, labeled bags and thrown in the basement and for most people, they never saw those DVDs again. You had to fight to get your DVDs back, and the rule that went in was you could only take possession of your DVDs on your day off, and security would log them out to you, and then log them back in. At the end of the day, you were supposed to take them back. So they became not your property anymore. They really became the property of the Sea Org, and it became a bit of a lending library sort of deal, only it was just your stuff that you could borrow. Uh, And that was very, very infuriating. I was very, very unhappy with that. Most people were. I don't know anyone on the base who was happy about those circumstances, although everybody sort of put up with it because it was an RTC order, security was enforcing it, and there was literally nothing we could do because all the DVDs were in a locked room that security alone had the key to. What we ended up doing is because of the, you know, waves of enforcement that would go on where things would get really strict and then things would kind of chill for a while and then things would get strict again and then things would chill for a while, is we would gradually get our DVDs back and then we just wouldn't take them back at the end of the day. And so we kind of built our DVD collection back up, although we lost many of them because security couldn't even find all of our DVDs. At the time that I was in the Sea Org, my wife and I had an extensive DVD collection. We'd buy them here, buy them there, get a few for Christmas, that sort of thing, and it builds up. And, uh, and I, I've always been, uh, you know, a cinephile. I love movies. So I had a really good collection of movies, and they were all just gone one day. So that kind of thing also would go on. So it didn't target a specific movie. It just targeted all of them. Uh, and also, by the way, uh, I don't know that I've ever mentioned this before, but there's a rule in the Sea org, You don't get a TV in your room. Uh, you got, you know, we, when we watched movies in our room, we watched them on our laptop because you couldn't have a TV. Hubbard specifically wrote a device saying that TV is, is really bad and horrible. For the Sea Org, he wrote this. And he said, you know, the Sea Org members are becoming mind-numbed robots watching these, these, these uh, soap operas and they're getting distracted. So apparently in the early days, in the 70s, Sea Org members had TVs, but that was canceled. And uh, by the time I got into the in 95, I mean, no one uh, really had a TV, unless you were a very senior executive, and then you could kind of get away with it. Uh, And even then, uh, if they got busted or in trouble, then, you know, if security knew about those TVs, then they would come in and take them. They they had no compunction about that. As far as security was concerned, they could do anything they wanted, uh, as long as they uh, fell under their... their, uh, sphere of responsibility or if they were ordered to, like that time with the RTC ordering the DVDs uh, all being confiscated. So that's uh, that was kind of, you know, I, I wanted to answer this question by giving you more of the flavor and attitude of life in the Sea Org rather than a list of things that were okay or not okay, because that kind that's kind of not really the way to approach that question. It's more like, look, we didn't have any time to really be watching movies anyway unless we were going purposefully off our schedule, which would get us in trouble. Uh, If we had illegal contraband DVDs, because we weren't supposed to have them at all at a certain point, that would get you in trouble. And, uh, And then, you know, as far as the subject matter goes, we all kinda knew what was and wasn't okay, so that wasn't really much of an issue and uh there you go jonathan pease i have a theory about how david miscavige might go about keeping the church going in spite of what appears to be its impending demise that i would like your opinion about my theory is that david will produce a carefully selected individual possibly born just after the death of l ron hubbard and claim that this is none other than a new manifestation of ron himself his main thetan perhaps returning to bring the church back to its full glory He could then make the claim that all of the projects, such as the Ideal Org Project and the large empty buildings, have all been about preparing for his return, a return which he could then claim he knew was coming all along. In doing this, he can then pass the entire mantle of the church, including all of its assets, to this well-chosen and well-trained individual. What are your thoughts about this theory? Nope, I don't think that that's going to happen at all, and let me explain why. Uh, as I've commented many times on this uh, critical q and shows and in my videos, David Miscavige is all about power and holding on to and accumulating more and more power and influence over his followers. That's what gets him off. He's, uh, the money is a side issue for him. I think he's, because he's got every material comfort he could ever want, he is never going to want for anything. And so that's not really, you know, the more accumulation of more wealth, is important to him as far as building up the reserves of the church, so as to have legal funds and and you know money for lawyers and private investigators and and whatever else he wants. And there's also a lot of projects the church works on and spends its money on that you know sometimes we know about and sometimes we don't. So that you know a lot of money gets gets pushed out. Uh, all of uh, all of that is done in order to keep. David Miscavige in the position that he's in. He's not looking for an exit strategy, ever, and I don't think he ever will. Uh, Short of the FBI or the police or somebody literally walking up with the handcuffs in hand coming for him, I don't think he's ever going to leave Scientology or, or take the money and run because that's not what it's about for him. For him, it's about controlling other people and inflicting his will on them and using Scientology to rationalize why and how he is going to go about doing that. So that's why I don't think that he has any idea of turning his mantle over to anyone, ever. I think he plans on holding on to it until he dies. Uh, maybe if he gets to a place where he's just incapable of doing the work that he's doing, whatever that is, uh, you know, going around opening orgs, that kind of thing, if he uh, gets to a place where he feels that that he doesn't want to or can't do that work anymore, he might dish that out to other people and he might gradually pull back. Uh, But I think that would not happen for decades at the rate he's going, I mean, he's, he looks like he's in good health, and he is uh, is certainly the guy in charge. And uh, I don't think he has any intention ever of rationalizing or justifying his failed programs to Scientology or to Scientologists by you know explaining away his apparent failure to make it go by turning it over to somebody else who's you know L. Ron Hubbard heir parent or reincarnation or something, I I just don't I don't think that's anywhere in his in any thought that he's ever had to do that because it's all about him and his power and and his influence over others. That's how he that's how he thinks. That's how he operates. So I hope that makes sense. Um, it's not that the idea is even a bad idea. The the question you ask is not a stupid question or. It's just so unrealistic <laughs> that I just go, yeah, no, it's not happening. Right? Cause that's cause it assumes things about David Miscavige that I don't I don't think are how he sees things or how he runs things. Um, and you know, I think he thinks that the ideal org program is a rip-roaring success. You know, they're opening buildings every year, it's you know, they they keep accumulating money from that. Uh, believe me, they are overcharging these organizations for the, for the money uh, to renovate these properties. So he's making money on that. He's making money hand over fist from the International Association of Scientologists. Uh, straight donations. So he's, he's, I, don't think he, I think he's very comfortable right now in his position. And he's not even thinking at all of, a, of any kind of exit strategy. There you go. Carol Rogers. If Scientology doesn't believe its techniques will work on criminals, what is the point of criminon? Is it just publicity and money? Seems like a dichotomy. This is a great question because it just requires clarification of what I and others have talked about before. The deal with criminality in Scientology is that if you are an active criminal, currently engaged in criminal activities then Scientology isn't going to work on you. Not if you have a criminal background or a criminal past. It's not the criminal mind that Scientology thinks doesn't, it doesn't work on. It's the fact that the person who is trying to avail themselves of Scientology or Dianetics um, has to withhold information from the auditor or from the organization because they're doing, right now, criminal things you know and and this has come up this has happened before in Scientology's history that people who are at, you know house robbers or jewelry thieves or or you know con guys have come in to avail themselves of this because they are sold on Dianetics and Scientology working for them just like anybody else is and then it comes up that they are doing criminal stuff and they're told hey you know you're going to have to knock that off because what it does is it sets up this mental problem for you where you can't be telling us everything you're doing because you're doing things that are against the law, and we can't have any of that. So, because uh, you're not going to get better if you can't tell us what's on your mind in your auditing sessions. Okay, that's the that's the most fundamental level theory of it. Right. The other part of the theory, of course, is that if somebody is uh, victimizing other people by stealing their stuff, beating them up, murdering them, whatever. Um, That's also going to create some fairly large mental barriers to their own self-improvement because they're actively going around, you know, not improving other people in a very proactive manner, (laughs) to say the least. So, um, so there, you know, Hubbard's, uh, there's a thing called an overt or an overt act in Scientology. It's when you do something bad or wrong or against the society's moral codes or, or the laws. Um. This uh, Hubbard said that that spiritually, this creates this sort of, you know, in, pulling in your flippers and and introverting and, and sucking all of your attention in on you because you're solving your problems by a criminal with a criminal solution. Uh, this isn't gonna, this is not going to lead you to uh, uh, down a road of spiritual improvement and increased spiritual ability uh, because you're you know you're just victimizing other people. I think that but that that makes sense, right? Criminon, as a program, goes into prisons and tries to rehabilitate criminals by teaching them a moral code. And that in and of itself is not necessarily a bad idea. The moral code they use is The Way to Happiness, a rather innocuous book, really. When you compare it to other Scientology books, The Way to Happiness has actually got some pretty good stuff in it. Don't steal. Don't murder. Don't harm a person of goodwill. Support, you know, a government run and you know for all the people. There's there's a lot of good precepts in there. I think there's 20 or 21 of them. And while I'll never, you know, say okay, let's go pass out Way to Happiness books because it's got Elwin Hubbard's name right on it, and that's going to lead to more nonsense. Um, the idea of instilling a moral code in people who have uh, been you know sequestered away from society because they cannot keep up a moral code of some kind you know you can reach some people with that you're not gonna reach everybody with it there's people in prison for a multitude of reasons and all kinds of factors have, have gone into why they are criminals uh, I mean hell some of them uh, wouldn't even be able to read the literature because they can't read so uh, and that's a big reason for uh, some people to go you know, into the world of criminality So there's, you know, there's a multitude of reasons there but the theory is that when a person's in prison they're no longer doing the same things that put them in prison. So they should be able to now respond to a attempt to rehabilitate them and of course if we had the right means and methods of rehabilitating people, if we knew exactly what it was that was going to rehabilitate people, that's actually kind of the, the point of, of prison in the first place. Uh, at least it should be, and it is in other countries. I know it's, it's not really in the United States. Uh, I've done a podcast on that and, and on private prisons and stuff. Uh, we have real problems in the United States with, with prison being a, a punishment, not rehabilitation. But that's a whole other issue. <laughs> so that's the theory that Scientology goes in on, and that's why it makes sense, you know, within Scientology's own logic... For them to be going after um, doing Criminon programs. And there's not, Criminon is not a lucrative part of Scientology. Um, I don't, you know, which is why it's also not something that's stressed a lot. The, The only way Criminon happens within the world of Scientology is when individual Scientologists take it upon themselves to go do the volunteer work at the prisons pay for the books, do the time with the, um, you know, inmates to teach them and get them through the program, Uh, even if it's by correspondence or in person. I think they've done both. So that's what I can, that's, that's about as much as I can say about that, but I think that will help make that make sense. And that thunder means it is time for flash answers. Kazuka. Hi, Chris. Could you share what you know about the policy of Ka Khan as mentioned by Leah Remini in a recent interview with Joe Rogan? All right, here's what I know about this off the top of my head, and it's just this is just a real fast answer. If someone does something or a series of things in Scientology or in the Sea Org, I, I believe it's Sea Org actually, but uh, no, 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 any Scientologist can have this awarded to them. That is amazing. I mean, really stellar. Like, oh my God, how did he possibly pull that off, sort of thing? Like, really big magnitude kind of thing. Not your everyday sort of thing. Like, the entire time I was in Scientology, I never saw anybody awarded it it, once, not not in my vicinity. But you can be awarded this Ka Khan title. And really, all that means is that you get a free pass in ethics if you get in trouble. (laughs) And I think it's supposed to give you like 10 free passes or something. I mean, it's kind of a big deal. And it um, gets you off of, uh, out of trouble, out of the hot seat uh, if you use it that way, right? And again, not something I ever saw done the entire time that I was in Scientology. I think I heard about maybe one or two people in all the years that I was in being awarded that status. I never saw David Miscavige give it out. I only saw it given out by L. Ron Hubbard. Um, so that's that's pretty much what I can say about it. It's really not a big deal because it's not something that was really used a whole lot. And it, uh, I think the, I think the phrasing in the award itself said something about how you can get away with murder, but th- that's not literal. I mean, that's not what we're talking about. Uh, it just means that you can, you know, get away with. Uh, uh, you know, really bad stuff, <laughs> because you did something or a series of things so amazing that you're given a, you know, given a pass. Frank, do you think teenage-slash-mid-twenties Scientologists are more likely to play along by Scientology's rules or more likely to break them based on the rebellious nature of being young? Well, I don't know about uh, you speaking for the entire group of young people, but I can tell you when I was a younger Scientologist, I was all about breaking the rules and getting away with it whenever I could. I mean, that's just kind of how, you know, young people are. And, uh, and there's nothing particularly wrong with that either in, in many circumstances, especially when it comes to Scientology's stupid rules. MM. What goes on in the minds of ex-Scientologists that submit themselves to A through E? I think I understand how it's possible to be trapped in a cult, I also think I have a concept of the decompression process, but I cannot understand why someone would ever return. Are people actually returning or is this typically just giving in to the harassment, repenting in order to appease the bully and make him stop? Quite simply, the only people I've ever seen do the A to E steps, which are the steps you have to do to revoke or cancel a suppressive person declare on you are people who never stopped believing in it in the first in the first place they were dedic you know you have to be dedicated to get through those a to e steps they are not easy to do and you gotta pay a lot of money use a lot of time a lot of effort um, no it's no walk in the park and uh, in order to do those steps you really do need to be a true believer so what you what you have is you have somebody who gets kicked out of the church they're declared because they did something that you know was really bad and the kind of person who's going to go do A to E is the kind of person who's going to agree that what they did was really bad and struggle to want to get back in the good graces of the church. And they'll do the work and do the time in order to make that happen. In all the years that I was in, I saw two people do that. So this is not a lot of people doing A to E. Uh, I attempted to do A to E because to hold on to my you know, ex-fiance relationship, but you know that failed within a month. And I was done, <laughs> and I was out, because uh, I, you know, I was not going to put up with what they were putting me through. And I already knew at that point that it wasn't that it was, you know, that the beliefs and all that were all bullshit. So I didn't have any compelling reason to stay in. People who do those A to E steps do either because they want to get reconnected with people who are still in, uh, or they and or they are true believers. And they want to avail themselves of, of Scientology services again, and the only way they can do it is to get through those steps. Okay, everybody. So that is our show for this week. I hope these answers were informative, entertaining, and uh, educational. Uh, I, I know you know I stuttered along on some of them, but I hope that uh, I hope the show was uh, was good for you guys. And I will see you next week. Bye bye.